0: Welcome to the IPv6 Buzz podcast, where we dare to dive into the 128-bit address space wormhole. Quick reminder, there's sponsorship opportunities for IPv6 Buzz and all the other Packet Pusher podcast shows. If you're interested, you can go to packetpushers.net slash sponsorship for details. And if you got something cool working with v6, we want to hear about it. So come join us. Uh, I'm Ed Horley with my co-host Tom Coffeen and Scott Hogue. And today we're going to be talking about comparing IPv6 adoption, the overall adoption effort, with Wi-Fi 6E adoption. And is it sort of fair to to make that analogy around either technology. And this is with our guest, Tom Hollingsworth with GoodSalt IT and, and sort of known for Tech Field Day and Network Field Day and all that other good stuff. So, Tom, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So you you put out
0: this YouTube sort of, I wouldn't call it a rant, <laughs> but but this point about sort of comparing V6's journey around what Wi-Fi 6E has going on and some parallels in technology adoption and and, and things like that. And so I wanted to go over a little bit of that just to give a little bit of background for for, for the audience. But then also, you know, you can share a little bit about maybe where where some of the impetus of
1: that came about. Sure, I'd be happy to. And I, I will be honest with you that when I was recording the episode, I literally hit publish and said, the IPv6 Buzz guys are going to call me. I know they're going to call me. <laughs> and, and so I, I was kind of expecting it. But I was having a conversation with some of my friends in the wireless community about, you know, Wi-Fi 6E, which is the implementation of 802.11ax on the newly opened 6 gigahertz spectrum band. And I was talking about the fact, you know, it's it's driven by increasingly difficult to allocate resources in lower bands. It has this great technology advantage over everything else. People are very hopeful about it. And as I was having this conversation... Thinking in my head, I'm like, wait a minute, I've heard all this before. This is IPv6 all over again. Cause you need new hardware to take advantage of it. And by the time it was all said and done with, like, I I was taking notes because I'm like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this this conversations episode where I can talk about it. And then, you know, the, the parallels just kind of keep going along from there. Because when you think about it, we've we find ourselves in a world of wireless now where the lower band, 2.4 gigahertz, which was was the first widely adopted band, is all but unavailable to us because there's only three channels that are non-overlapping. Uh, there's a lot of devices that operate in that band. I mean, it, you just go around your house and pretty much everything that uses wireless operates in that band, whether it's a, uh, a phone or a laptop or a thermostat or a security camera. And there's... There's reasons for that, but most people have just kind of given up on ever being able to use it unless it's for IOT devices. Five gigahertz is there, but we're starting to see people who are trying to, you know, juice throughput numbers. So they're doing things like bonding multiple channels together and that's increasing throughput, but reducing the available space for, you know, clients to connect and to be able to plan things out. And so six gigahertz was opened uh, the last year or maybe the year before as this big opportunity, you know, kind of like when the, the, the West was opened up to settlers and like, Oh, there's all this land and you can do whatever you want with it, except there aren't any clients to take advantage of it right now. There's a few that are on the market, but there's a lot of people that are trying to get you to buy these APs. And I'm like, this doesn't really make sense to me. Like there's, there's not really a driver to move forward. And it, it really does track well with that whole, you know, we're going to run out of IP addresses sooner or later. And there's a very good technical reasons for wanting to move to V6. You know, we're getting rid of ARP and all these other things, and it'll be great. And everybody turned around and went, but why? Like, for the sake of tech, it's cool, but I don't have a business reason to go yet. And that's kind of where the whole thing just started snowballing from there.
2: Yeah. Generally speaking, you don't have to upgrade your hardware to establish IPv6 connectivity, most you know, network devices, firewalls, hosts natively support IPv6, but it's more a matter of turning it on in the software. But with wireless equipment, you know, there's radio, radio frequencies. It makes sense that there's hardware upgrade uh, when moving to a new frequency.
1: And you're right. right. And and absolutely, in today's market, routers have enough memory and large enough CPUs to be able to really take advantage of of being able to run V6 and V4 and a bunch of other things, but going you know back to 1994, I mean the memory space was at a premium, and I think that that you're absolutely right that that modern equipment can run V6 in software without any additional barriers from that side, and so that actually makes it a worse problem because even though you're capable of doing it, why haven't you turned it on yet? Um, <laughs> believe it or not, yeah. the hardware is actually the reason why 6e Wi-Fi 6e will eventually be deployed because what will happen is is that a lot of new technology whether it's a laptop or a tablet or something not like an IoT device but something that's a little bit more of a heavyweight device will eventually just include that support no matter what and you'll be using it and not even realize it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But well, you're right. It was the case probably 10 to 20 years ago that yeah, I hardware didn't support IPv6 natively. IPv6, yeah, you know, that really old hardware didn't do hardware acceleration for V6 packets. Might have actually even the software was configured to converge V4 before V6 because V6 was implied that it was being used on a tunnel over V4 transport. Mm-hmm. There were things like that where it would slow it was slow to converge V6. You know, it wasn't treated as well but now that's all you know gone but there could still be old old devices and networks possibly at the edges or
0: distant locations or or if there's an unknown it punts to the cpu which is still true Mm -hmm. in v4 too for many many people still don't realize this. (laughs) all right
2: yeah that's definitely true of things like the firewall services module in a in a you know old firewall services module in a 6500 yeah right Pointed yep. at the CPU. The Honestly,
1: CPU. if you're still running a firewall, service, <laughs> you have other problems to fix. Before hey, hey, I'm just, I'm just showing my age, I guess.
3: You get what you deserve, is what Tom says. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But, but believe it or not, that's not an uncommon problem to deal with in the wireless space as well, because we have these brand new, awesome, amazing access points that have all these CPUs and can do all these amazing things. And then you deploy them in a warehouse because the old little tells on scanners that they're using mm-hmm. to do inventory control still run on 802.11b, which <laughs> I believe predates all of my children.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but. But it gets you the distance from the AP
1: across that big warehouse oh yeah and and that ultimately is is the thing there's there's a technological reason why two point four gigahertz is still as popular as it is and it's it's walls mm-hmm. I yeah. mean you know the the beam width is so wide that it can bounce around walls and get through things because realistically speaking if we had to do this all over again we would have never picked that band because hello microwaves yeah <laughs> yeah
0: yeah, it's, and it's and and also just because we're giant bags of water that wander around and 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 guess what, you know, really works well for converting energy <laughs> into yeah. heat, water vapor. But yeah, I think maybe we can cover a little bit more around some specifics around V six adoption that's sort of been nagging you within recent. I mean, I know you keep up relatively up to date on on a bunch of the V six related stuff, and I think I think you listen to the show occasionally too. So. And has there been anything that's for you has been sort of a like, you know, scratch head scratcher of like, it doesn't make sense why folks aren't adopting and it may be in parallel with what, with, you know, I think Wi-Fi 6C has a cha- an additional challenge right now of just, you know, getting product, right. There's just, there's just the issue of like how many clients are available, but also can they produce all the chips that are going to be required to, to have ubiquitous 6C deployment? And I, I don't know what the status is with all the m- manufacturers around that. If they're to, like, yeah, that's not a problem. But I know that certainly for many of the other networking vendors are having issues with other chips and, and capabilities to be able to get devices shipped out right now. So what, what do you see as a landscape around that right now?
1: Well, I mean... The chip shortage is actually a huge problem that a lot of people are, you know, saying we're looking at six to nine months for lead times on certain things. There's also this issue of being first to market with a 6E capable AP that maybe isn't running the full feature set that you'd like it to, or maybe even that it's officially adopted yet, knowing that if you implement it today, you may very possibly have to swap that gear out in a year for for new stuff. And and there's the usual back and forth between vendors of, well, ours is better than yours. And we use better stuff than you did. And it, it all gets devolved down in there. But I think that there a few of the things that, again, that kind of track in parallel is, is the mandate to adopt these things. It's not like there's somebody that's sitting out there saying, you must go to 6 gigahertz. You must have capabilities to mm-hmm. do this. Now, right. we, we deal with this if you work for a reseller or you work for someone who answers RFPs. That's an easy one. You get an RFP, it says this AP must support six, six gigahertz. That's a cut and dried answer. You, know, you only bid the gear that they want. Likewise, right. if you have an RFP that says that this must include full IPv6 support and it details exactly how it must be implemented. I mean, those are the drivers for adoption that honestly pull new technology into the market. And we've seen that, thankfully, from the US government because they finally threw the gauntlet down and said, you know what? We want to modernize. We want to be able to do this because the force space isn't going to last forever. And let's just be fair. If the government is the thing that's driving the adoption and doing the mandates, you're at least 20 years behind the ball because the U.S. government does not move fast. But when you look at other technologies, and, and 6E will probably get to this point pretty soon, the mandate for adoption doesn't come from regulatory bodies saying you must turn this feature on. It's from customers saying, "I want you to support this because X." And maybe X is, "Oh my God, I live in the most hostile RF environment on the planet, and I need something that isn't going to have a collision there." And you know, you say maybe see something like, I don't know, like in a hospital, for example. Hospital customers could absolutely drive 6E adoption tomorrow because it's a non-interfering band. With everything else that they've been using. The problem is, is that that process is going to require them to go to their vendors for their equipment and say that insulin pump needs to have a 6E radio in it. And then the manufacturer is going to have to do the testing and get it approved and all that other stuff. So we're still looking at a long timeline. And I think that that ultimately is one of the things that really screwed IPv6 is that so many companies didn't jump on board because there was no mandate from the users that they needed it or they wanted it. And so they kept sandbagging the whole process because for them it wasn't implementing technology for the sake of technology or doing something neat and interesting it was this is going to cost me money and I don't want to pay
0: yeah and I think I think it's also a difference of, of two different market segments uh, there's a certain set of market that needs more address space enterprises don't necessarily um, you know I would say the standard you know small medium business and 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 many enterprises don't need additional address space they they have other issues that are that are more pressing in terms of some of the things they're trying to solve. But if you talk to any service provider, right, they're like, yeah, we, we have to have something to sell. We don't have addresses. We have nothing to sell. We, our service literally can't be delivered. We we don't have anything to sell a customer then. Uh, and a similar problem for you know cloud scale uh, operations in terms of what they need to do over the long term. And so I think they have very different need requirements. And I think those are reflected in terms of what you saw from an adoption standpoint, mobile operators, right? They can't sell more handsets and get more people on on mobile networks unless they've got V six to be able to solve that related problem. And so I think that's it's just a difference in terms of where things are at versus someone who needs Wi Fi six E is, is they're really looking for you know a specific use case around um, maybe like you said not having collisions for a particular you know band or spectrum or they're looking really for you know very high performance capabilities with, with 6E because they've got a heck of a lot more channels and and a, and a lot more space to necessarily operate in so they can do a better job maybe engineering around specific problems that they may have. I, I, I think that might have a little bit to do about it. That's just my speculation or my, my, my sort of lens around what, what's caused some of that problems. But I will say that I think IPv6 adoption has changed in the last two to three years in terms of the customer's at least we talked to and the the, the industry and colleagues that we talked to in the industry overall are really saying enterprises, especially in the the bigger organizations, are really trying to figure out V6 now because they really do have structural address problems and are also being requested to work with organizations with V6 because of certain geographies and markets that really have have adopted V6. I don't know if you've heard the same thing, Tom, or if you're seeing something similar, but that's just at least my narrow view of
1: the world. No, your, your view is right. And, and you know, you you guys are all closer to that space than a lot of other engineers out there. And I think that that's important to distinguish the fact that, yes, IPv6 adoption has grown significantly in the last couple of years. I'm, I remember looking at it, you know, 8, 10 years ago and just kind of shrugging my shoulders. I mean, the only people who were really deploying it for real, were like Hurricane Electric customers because they wanted to get the, the IPv6 Sage certification or whatever. And, <laughs> yeah. and now that we've exhausted all the address space and now that we're starting to see real requirements from mobile providers and things like that, people are getting serious. I mean, I don't, I don't even believe that you can submit an app to the Apple App Store now unless it has v6 support built into it because yeah. Apple saw the future of we're going to run out of address space. But saying that IPv6 address adoption has grown in the last two years, underscores the fact that if it had grown this much in the first two years that it was out, we might not be facing a lot of the same problems that we're facing right now. And yeah. just like any other technology that has sat here and languished for years, when someone dusts it off and they're like, oh, hey, here's this cool thing that fixes a problem that I've got. We should totally get behind that. And then there's some old bearded person in the data center in a rocking chair going back in my day kind of stories. <laughs> and, and I think that that ultimately is the part that just irritates the living daylights out of me about the whole thing is so many people are complaining about the fact that there's no address space left that Amazon is buying these huge blocks of addressing so that they can load them into AWS for their customers to use. And now there's like this rush of, oh, my God, where are we going to find the next address space? And, of course, there's speculators that are kind of flooding into the market that want to, you know, oh, look, I have a valuable resource. And that may be the most valuable thing of all because once the speculation market drives the pricing of address blocks through the roof, people are just going to quit. They're going to say, well, I'm not going to pay that much because that now the opportunity cost for me to be able to acquire enough address space for me to be able to use this effectively is too high for me. But here's this other thing that I could absolutely implement tomorrow and make work and I can just, you know, deflate the speculation market instantly. Now, I don't know if it's as cut and dried as it would be, you know, waxing intellectually about it on a podcast, but but the the thing that that ultimately drives change is not cool technology it's cost and people unfortunately that run companies are greedy and they will only do things that are in their quote unquote best interests if their quote unquote best interests are cheaper than all the other alternatives
3: mm-hmm. yeah it's a it's a critical point and i the, i think part of the the nuance of it is that the the problems that are trying to be solved like tech from a technological slash network basis over time, you know, you go all the way back to the early two thousands when IPv6 was sort of first on the scene and, and the set of problems, like say for enterprise IT, what enterprise IT was and and how it was managed and, and what its cost centers were and, and how everyone conceived of it. it's radically different than where it is now. And so, you know, you mentioned the folks that are like, well, how do I, how do I justify this from a cost basis? And there's the obvious ones that you like the one you just mentioned about, well you know we're sitting on this resource of ipv4 and it has some arbitrarily high value because of the the scarcity of it but you know sort of backing up and looking at the bigger picture of what what is the role of enterprise it and where do those costs exist today and how how are those costs being shifted around and and trying to sort of shoehorn ipv6 into that equation you know if you if you're looking at it as solving particular technical problems that are just around address exhaustion and you're not looking at it around like how how do we reduce Opex costs and how do we streamline enterprise IT and make it, uh, you know, a service delivery center versus just a, a cost and then the sunk cost of having to manage all the operations around IPv4? It, it's it's just it, it's beguiling, I think from from the standpoint of you know the, the the folks who are making the decisions at the highest level, and and I think it's starting to come into clearer focus, and I think that's part of some of the 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 wholesome adoption of IPv6 that we're seeing at this late date on the enterprise side is is sort of a factor there. And so that's kind of encouraging because it, it it suggests that, you know, maybe that we're actually getting some traction with some different ways of looking at enterprise IT and how things like IPv6 can be a resource to, to enable that. And then, of course, you know, potentially wireless 6E is the same thing. Yeah,
2: I mean, Tom makes a good point. Like, you still have that dependency on IPv4 when you run dual protocol the only way you you eliminate your dependency on ipv4 addressing is to go v6 only so many organizations have played chicken with this oncoming train they've seen for 15 years 10 years and they thought oh i'll just await it out or something and now you know had they moved to dual protocol they would, in the the last, let's say, 10 years, then their only final step was to remove V4 to get to V6 only. Now, if you wait until you're at the last possible moment to make the flip, you have to go from the IPV4 rail clear to the V6 only rail to get that benefit.
1: So the funny story there is that this parallel actually did happen in wireless a few years ago, where they basically broke support for older technologies Mm -hmm. on purpose. Mm -hmm. So um, the marketing terms that they use are Wi-Fi 4 is 802.11n, Wi-Fi 5 is 802.11ac. And those were the protocol names before they ever had marketing terms. But essentially Wi-Fi 5 does not have a 2.4 gigahertz component. It is only 5 gigahertz. All of the advantages and all of the improvements that they made to the protocol do not run in the lower band. So if you're running on a non-AXAP today, so anything that's Mm Wi-Fi 5, the radio technology that's in it is from like 2005. (laughs) Well, maybe a little newer than that. But basically, it's 802.11n. And And the answer was, why are we going to keep supporting this crap? Because... We should have everybody on the new stuff. And I'll be honest, if it wasn't for IoT, they probably would have already dropped it. Mm -hmm. They would have just said, upgrade your Telzons and upgrade your other old crap, upgrade Mm -hmm. your Xboxes and use the new stuff. But so many people had these legacy devices that just had to work, that they had to build support for 2.4 gigahertz back into 80211 ax Um, Now, granted, they, they did improvements and it kind of works a little bit better compared to the way that it used to, but, but you're right is that when you're running a dual stack, you are implicitly supporting v four indefinitely as it were, because you're either using it as a failback mechanism or you're using, you know, it's a race condition to see which one gives you the better performance. And and we're going to be sticky on that vice versa. Um, yes, if you were able to cut away and just go to V six and solve your problems there, things would be better. It's like people who dual boot Linux and Windows on their workstation. If there's a good reason for you to be in Windows, great. But is it that you have a good reason to be in Windows or do you just dual boot in Linux to mess around with some stuff and then you boot back into Windows when you want to get real work done? I promise you, you're not going to get any real learning done on Linux until you use it every day and you basically abandoned anything else that you need to have, quote unquote, because it only runs here. Um, because I promise you, you're going to find much better alternatives to that software when you're not using a crutch. And likewise, if you're developing for V6, if you're running V6 as as much as you can, removing the V4 crutch as much as possible mm-hmm. will make your life better. Yeah, I,
0: I I think it's an interesting point. I and I think your analogy around sort of the, the carryover is, is is apt. I, I, I think I I sort of consider that like the IPv4 NAT and CIDR. Like giving it that much of a longer life tail for IPv4 versus you know sort of v6 adoption and what could happen there, uh, it sounds very uh, it sounds very similar in terms of where things where things were going for for the Wi-Fi side. Uh, obviously, for for v6, I think it was a much longer delay in terms of forcing folks, and I think it's just an engineering habit now, which may be similar to Wi-Fi. Right, you build a set of skills, you understand how to deal with 2.4 and five. You know, adopting six. I have to learn a new frequency. I have to learn new bands. I have to learn all this other stuff. I have to do, do a new set of engineering. I'm doing three sets of engineering now, right? Maybe in spectrum. It's a lot more work. Uh, I don't want to deal with it. And I think there's a lot of similarities there, right? For people that already knew how to do. Nat had gotten the advantages of, of CIDR for V4, have you know been super comfortable with V4 for the entirety of their career. And they're like, I just don't want to deal with the V6 stuff, right? Um, it just, It just... It's not something I want to engineer around. It's not something I want to learn net new. I've got a bunch of other things that are on my plate that I've got to deal with. I think there's probably some similarities in, in, in some in some regard for that too. Yeah, I mean, it's is is there going to be anything interesting in terms of in terms of uh, you know I, just in terms of covering 6e really quickly, besides the fact that you know. IPv6 and 6E share the number six. I don't think there's anything really <laughs> similar between them. Um, is 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 it going to matter for folks when they're thinking about v6? Is there anything around 6E that's actually an advantage or a plus around IPv6 itself or, or even Wi-Fi 6? I don't think there's anything special in terms of the spectrum or space that's going to make an impact or a difference for v6 in terms of deployment on Wi-Fi. But I think it's... Uh, uh, it's, it's perfectly capable of doing it. Is has at least been my experience so far. At least for anything that's that's happened up to Wi-Fi six so far.
1: Yeah. This this ultimately like the the technology itself behind the bands the bandwidth isn't going to matter much. It'd be like saying, well, you know, you can't run IPv six over a Cat five e cable. You have to use a Cat six cable. Right, um, right. But, right. But, but, but <laughs> I but have adding.
2: a I have a four G phone that only uses IPv4, so I'm going to wait till six G comes out. Top right <laughs>
1: <I think> <laughs> oh yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm tired of fielding the when is IPv7 questions. gonna But there are some issues with V6 when it comes to things like uh, broadcast because um, wireless is is very much a broadcast heavy. Type of technology but there are ways around it and thankfully like i remember this being an issue when i looked at it like seven years ago and they've gotten way better at it but a lot of it comes down to you know how how information is shared and things like how a router advertisements sent and stuff like that right but yeah, but ultimately Uh, that you're talking
0: about the multicast issue of is it multicast and multicast is it multicast and unicast is there there's different design options in terms of how to get that traffic
1: those RAs and things out on the wire for clients to detect what's going on right yeah because you know what are you going to do we're going to suppress broadcasts we're going to suppress multicasts and just do unicast communications and things like that but the nice thing is is that the people who are developing the technologies are not unaware of these issues and so as the as every version comes out they're they're continuing to increase that support because thankfully people who do this kind of stuff for a living realize that we're not going to be able to be stuck on v4 forever that we're eventually going to run out of space and so they have to build in support for the way that things work it's like oh you know broadcast is as much of a crutch as you know classful addressing at this point <laughs> and so they'll 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 eventually figure that out. And honestly, the easiest way for you to do any kind of help there is to enable and run V6 as much as possible and when you see weird things happening like this, tell the manufacturer, say, you know, I'm seeing these really weird traffic patterns or I'm seeing this, you know, basically denial of service attack happening because it keeps replicating all this information and that helps them fix it because they may not be in a situation where they can run that like they would want to, because we all know the cobbler's kids don't have shoes. So if you think that your networking equipment is old, you can imagine how old the equipment is in the, the factories of the people that make this stuff, because I promise you every unit that they don't ship out the door to sell is a profit loss for them. So there's no way they're going to upgrade their own stuff until they have to. Well,
3: I th- it's, for me, that sort of drives the question of what, uh, what incentive do they have to, I mean, just let me back up. I know there's sort of a lot of scuttlebutt about the the number of just cruddy IoT stacks that are out there that just barely support IPv4. And if they do support IPv6, they barely support that. And then would you sort of layer on all of the the ways in which IPv6 functions differently than IPv4? You know, there for me it's a gray area because I'm not I'm not in that space, but but I'm left to wonder how much just really unusable IoT, IPv6 stacks are are out there. And then in having to roll out 6E and, and get those, you know, you we, we made the point that obviously it's a different different layer of the networking stack, but, but is there is there an opportunity to, to drive improvement in the IPv6 stack for those devices, you know, based on, on this evolution to 6E? Or, you know, is it like, okay, great, you got the 6E radio, but unfortunately your IPv6 stack is still a pile of crap and it's not really going to work effectively for what we need it to?
1: The drivers for the adoption of those advanced technologies in those IoT stacks is going to come from the technology itself because you will never be able to win this on a price-profit type of discussion. And the reason why is because as bad as their IPv4 stacks are, their wireless stacks are worse because they use the cheapest radios that they can find. Like, Like Radio Shack wouldn't even carry these things back in the day. And so that's why, like, if you enable HomeKit on your Apple devices at home, that's why you have to have 2.4 gigahertz enabled. Like, you are not even allowed to enable HomeKit unless you have that, because so many of those devices only operate in that band. However, when you look at things like security cameras, so like your your home security system likely uses a 5 gigahertz radio. And you're like, oh, well, that's an interesting development. Why would they do that? Well, it turns out you can only transmit so much data at 2.4 gigahertz. And when you're streaming video back to an NVR all the time or streaming to the cloud, you really want the higher bandwidth applications. And so that became a cost benefit analysis for the the companies. It's like, well, do we put a 5 gigahertz radio in here? How does that change the way that we deploy these things? And you know, can we make enough money on a per unit basis to offset this fact? And a lot of it came down to, you just can't run that much video over 2.4. So we have to do this. So if you want them to increase that adoption, you're going to have to get to a point where they don't have any other choice. You're essentially going to have to drag them kicking and screaming into the modern era. And I think that that's where things like this government mandate are going to be Hopeful. Now, I don't know how the government feels about IoT because, you know, they're still stuck in the token ring stages in some cases. But you've got to have those applications where it's like, if it doesn't support these things, we will not install it. And if anybody wants in on some of that sweet, sweet cash, they're going to have to up their game.
3: Yeah, and the point you make about there there have to be particular applications that are driving it as opposed to, you know, we'll just do it because it's the virtuous thing to do and it'll, the support will be there in whatever application we decide, you know, we're going to need, which as an engineer, that's what I want to have happen, but that's not the, the world that we live in. It's more like here are the particular applications that you need to support and that will drive the, the upgrade cycle, essentially.
0: Yeah, I, I think there are going to be specific markets that are more interested in that. We've seen some development in the wireless space around, uh, utilizing, you know, some older, older protocols that were trying to be innovative around power saving for for devices, things like six low pan, right. You know, low power, low power, you know, does does not require the device to be on all the time to keep heartbeats alive, to do all that sort of stuff to get a lot more efficiency. I don't think they necessarily care whether they're 2.4 or five or six, but it's really about making sure that the IP protocol isn't putting undue burden on the performance of the, lower portions of the stack uh, in terms of capabilities. And I think V6, uh, they really try to concentrate on on trying to make some of those innovations happen there. As a result, there's sort of like, at least from my observations, there seems to be sort of two sets of of players in the market. Those that are like, yeah, we just leave everything IPv4 or cheapest chipsets. That's what it is. You just run it and and sort of go from there. And there seems to be a whole nother set of, of innovative IoT players that are all IPv6 only. They're like, we're putting everything through a gateway anyway. So at that point, we'll translate to v4 if you need it to be v4. But everything that we run back behind this device uh, is going to be v6 enabled. And we don't care what your network infrastructure is. We're just going to be you know, running you know IPv6 as the protocol set on top of that network.
2: Yeah. With an IoT network that runs IPv4, and many of them do, there's broadcasts and broadcast storms and there's a limited to the there's a limit to the number of number of nodes you can have in a single broadcast domain with ipv4 when you run dual protocol you still have that v4 broadcast traffic and you have the v6 link local traffic which isn't very much but if you can get that network to run unicast ras long you know neighbor cache timeouts other things use multicast efficiently then you can really save battery life, but it has to be a V6 only IoT right. network.
0: Let's chat about the 2.4 five gigahertz. For the audience that may not be aware, you know, you, you don't necessarily get all of 2.4 and all of five gigahertz in every single country. It's in the same spectrum everywhere,
1: right? Is that, yeah. is that right? So down? so essentially, what they've done is they've they've carved up the spectrum for a variety of reasons. So, for example, if you uh, if you turn on a, your wireless in Japan, you'll see an extra channel is channel 13 that's actually just outside of the u.s spectrum as a matter of fact that's why when you order an ap you have to define where you're from because the ap that you ship you they will ship you has to be configured for that country whether it's japan or europe or the u.s Um, and there are people who are doing other weird things and likewise in the u.s um in five gigahertz there are some pieces in the middle of the spectrum bands, the uni bands is what they're Mm -hmm. referred to as like for radar and stuff like that, that you kind of have to stay away from. And the government's always going back and checking on these things. And like a few years ago, they opened up one of the uni bands, which actually was great because it allowed people to do bigger channel widths for for more bandwidth. But ultimately what you're going to run into is six gigahertz is a very big spectrum band to have opened up. It is roughly double the size of what we've had before, but it's not completely unlimited. So going back to the, the reference of kind of opening up the West, there are people who are already here and they are not happy that this band has been opened up. A lot of them are incumbent providers. AT&T is one of them. And there are also some satellite communications providers that use the six gigahertz spectrum. And there was an excellent talk at WLPC, I want to say it was back in 2018, done by Chuck Lukaszewski of Aruba, who's been driving this whole thing. Like like he has literally been the train conductor driving this thing the whole way. And they had to do massive impact studies on the basically the, the, the radio noise that a six gigahertz AP could generate around a satellite downlink facility. And like, they had to drive around and do these impact uh, statements for the FCC before they would even be willing to do that. And so like, there's a lot of pushback from the incumbents that are like, you know, I don't know why you want to open this up. I don't know why this is such a big deal. And a lot of it comes back to the greed thing. They want the spectrum, but they don't want it because they're Trying to rely on existing technology, they want it because they want to be able to sell it to you. Because they want to be able to open that up and say, oh, you know, hey, here's our cool new 5G plus thing that works here and offloads stuff to this band so that we don't have to use the other bands that are all congested. And that's going to be a problem. Um, the other reason why is because it's an unlicensed band. So that means you can get people sticking things in there and causing all kinds of havoc as opposed to some of the other bands that the FCC has opened up recently, like CBRS, for example, which is operating in a band in the three and a half gigahertz range, but it has very strict limitations. Like there are certain sections you absolutely can't use and there's some that you can use with certain permissions, but you didn't get that with six gigahertz. And the impact studies are only being done now for foreign countries. So, you know, they're they're looking to open it up in Canada fairly soon. They're looking to open it up in Europe. But again, are you going to get the same channels in both places? Are there going to be limitations on things that absolutely can't be used because there's something there that that just can't be moved? Like right now, if you live anywhere outside of the U.S. and you try to place an order for a Wi-Fi 6E AP, you're not going to get it. Because you legally can't operate it in your country. And so the manufacturers are, you know, they got their fingers crossed that eventually these regulatory bodies are going to open it up. But that's still months of debate and months of discussion down the road. And honestly, until the Apples and the Googles and the Samsungs of the world include radios that need to feed the, that APs need the connectivity until there's a client radio that's deployed enough to make this make sense. You're not going to see consumers clamoring to have this adopted like we've seen with so many other things. Yeah.
0: I I think it's a good point that, that, and and (laughs) it's funny there it's not like there's a country limitation or requirement around v6, but there is a little bit of analogy in terms of like when exhaustion happened for for v4 address space to force v6 adoption, because uh, you know each one of the RARs chose a different sort of method or way to to go ahead and deal with the exhaust the pending exhaustion or or you know not having any more IPv4 address space available. And in, and in, in Aaron and in, you know for sort of North America. You know, chose to just you know <laughs> drive drive straight out to zero as quickly as possible. But there were other other RARs that chose to to take a different path. And I see some some analogies in terms of how like address uh, address space and, and spectrum space are being sort of carved up and being allocated out. There's some similarities there in terms of some some constraints for the users. And it, and it also introduces a set of complexity around the adoption, right? Uh, right, Tom. In terms of like, hey, you really got to understand what. What's available within your area? Like, I guess the U.S. is a big enough, big enough footprint uh, that it's not as as much of a challenge. But I imagine for other parts of the world, that this could be a much bigger issue in terms of which radios you actually get, what spectrum space you can actually, you know, you know, do stuff in, and then having to understand, you know, what you can or can't use.
1: Uh, it, it absolutely does because the the problem you run into with having all this spectrum space available is the first thing you want to do like you said is kind of carve it up to make it more appealing to customers when you bond channels together in wireless it increases the throughput so if you've ever gone to best buy and you've seen oh gigabit throughput on a on a consumer grade access point know that the reason why you're doing that is because they're essentially creating the best way to think of it is like a um an mlag link So you're sending data over four channels at once instead of just one. The problem is is that depending on how you carve up that spectrum, if you make an allocation in the middle of it for some existing technology like a satellite downlink, and it just happens to be in the middle of where I would bond eight of those channels together to get a 160 megahertz wide lane, that screws everything up. And if it's only, you only have to worry about that in France, but not in Belgium or in Texas, then that's going to change a lot of the way that people do deployment guides. And that you don't have that problem with a lot of other technologies. And it it's maddening because you have to remember, oh, that feature is not available in this country because, you know, 25 years ago they allocated that spectrum to this emergency services group and they ain't giving it back. So you you kind of have to be very aware of that. And hopefully the blueprint going forward for these kinds of things is that the people that are trying to adopt the technology will take all of this into consideration and and work with other companies to be like, okay, we need to really modify the way that this works or we need to make sure that we have exemptions for this. Like maybe you can have that space, but you only have it at like, you know, a very low power rating or it can't leak outside of your walls because it could potentially impact like a fire truck or something. But those are the conversations that have to be had before the adoption can take place. Because if you just willy-nilly adopt things, then you end up with a mess that you're going to have to fix later. And we already went down that road with six, with V6. Yeah.
2: It sounds like there's, there's a lot of engineering considerations. So as a, a wireless architect is planning this, you know, they do have a bit of a time horizon while they're waiting for client radios to be available, but they will be there. It's it's inevitable, right, that this will happen. So as organizations or wireless engineers are planning for this hardware upgrade, it sounds like they should also be planning to deploy IPv6 on this new infrastructure rather than think of IPv6 as an afterthought, then have a second project that is, oh yeah, now we add IPv6 to the wireless infrastructure we deployed. It'd be easier just to bake it in right at first when you're Upgrading the hardware, upgrading the software, enable IPv6. And those clients that get those new radios, absolutely, they'll support IPv6.
1: When you're doing this as a planning phase, you absolutely have to take all technologies into account. Um, No wireless professional worth their salt today will only plan a network for 2.4 gigahertz. At a minimum, they'll do 2.4 and 5, and most of them will say that they're starting to plan for 6 based on customer demand. But a lot of wireless professionals that I know personally are very, very focused on layer 1. They are very focused on the radio part, and once that packet hits the bridge on the access point and goes into the wired network, good luck to you because I don't care about that anymore. That's somebody else's problem but they really do need to be worried about the way that you're deploying that technology. And I agree with you 155%. You absolutely need to be enabling V6 on all of these things because you need to understand how it behaves. You need to understand how clients behave when they're faced with these kinds of challenges. Um, and, and, like I said before, you know, V4, V6, Is kind of like, you know, it's behind the scenes stuff, and it'd be like saying, well, V6 doesn't run well over this cable or that cable. Yeah. But the difference is, is that you typically don't see situations where, like, someone drives a forklift full of water barrels through your data path, and that causes mangled packet returns. You don't get that on a wire. So you need to be testing this as a wireless professional. You need to be advocating for that technology, even if all you're doing is flipping a switch for your customers and saying, hey, I've enabled this and and I, I want to work with your team to make sure that you're taking full advantage of it. Don't give these people a Ferrari and then have them drive it on like 85 octane gas, because that's kind of <laughs> where you're at right now. Mm-hmm. If you're giving them six EAPs and then saying, oh, well, you should just run this on like, you know, an RFC 1918 10 net behind here. <laughs> no, do not do that.
0: And that's a really important point because you are starting to see wireless networks that are, you know, it's, I always laugh when I, when I, when I talk to a bunch of the wireless professionals and they're like, yeah, we have this weird problem where, you know, they don't have enough single contiguous address space to assign to the wifi spectrum space to get all the clients on, right. Cause they run it as one large, you know, subnet, stick all the clients in there and just require them all to go back through the radio. Right. So uh, go back through the through the routing gate, gateway so they're not allowed to talk to each other but they're only allowed to talk to the you know to the ap and, and get outbound and up and upstream but they need like a you know slash 20 or you know slash 19 or something to get, get enough address space it's one thing you'll never have to worry about on the v6 side. <laughs> single 64 should be covered for for all of that so yeah because you don't want clients
2: to do layer three roaming you want to roam right layer two right well, yeah give it a slash
0: 64 Yep, yeah, be done. <laughs> well, cool. Well, I mean, is is there any other differences or considerations we we want to talk through you guys about, you know, sort of v4 and v6 on, on the wireless land side? Is there other interesting things that might might be worth mentioning to the
1: audience uh, around that? I think those are like the the majority of them are are con, kind of contained in there. I mean, you know, there's there's gonna be, you know, challenges in, you know, do you use DHCP V6? Do you use Slack addressing? um, you know, that kind of thing. But a lot of those are, they're, they're spectrum agnostic problems. You'd be facing these if you were deploying V6 on access points that you bought from Best Buy. Right. But, but, but the important thing to remember is, is that as you're layering this sandwich, you can't have what I would consider to be the, this, the reassuring stability of the transmission medium. You know i plug a cable in and it works in fact when we're doing network troubleshooting usually the last thing we check is the cable and with wi-fi the first thing you check is the radio because its performance can vary so much and the weird things that happen because of that can be so odd that you would never think to yourself hmm i wonder if that's a, a layer one issue so, you know, be be aware of that as you're troubleshooting IPv6 things, you know, like what happens if a packet gets chopped in the middle of a transmission? What happens when there's, you know, co-channel interference or, you know, the duty cycle is tuned incorrectly or something like that? Like, like there's a whole different list of terminology that you have to know when you're doing wireless. And then you layer in a new protocol on top of it, like V6, and your head just explodes.
2: Yeah, we've talked about like DHCP lease times. Like for IPv4, many wireless networks set a very low lease time because they don't have a lot of even private P4 addresses. So, you know, they're renewing at half the lease time. But with DHCP v6 for IPv6, you could set the lease times pretty big because you're not likely to run into a pool exhaustion issue.
0: Not likely. That's a polite way of putting it. Not likely. Not likely.
2: Well, I mean... There are DHCP uh, attacks, <laughs> dhcpv 6 Yeah.
1: yeah. Cool but, then, attacks. but then that gets into a whole other discussion of, you know, things like privacy addressing or mobile IP. And it's like, you know, there's, they, these are things you never even bothered to. Th- learn about because you didn't think they were even possible. And now, oh wait, you mean I, I Well we still don't this? think about mobile IP. No. I mean, it's it's there. You can think about it and then chuckle and move on to you know real things that actually <laughs> yes, work. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. but but the thing there is like like you know like you said, you know, it's just ingrained into people's minds. You know, set your lease timers for eight hours. Uh you know I'm I'm in a coffee shop and I'm just gonna set my lease timers really, really short because I don't care. Why bother now? I mean Just have that person, you know, I'm not indefinite on it, but, you know, I mean, such to like a year, like like they can just keep having that address when they come back or something like that. But it, you know, when you don't have to constantly keep sending the, you know, reauthorization packets effectively, um, that cuts down on network traffic and less traffic on a Wi-Fi network is important because of the fact, like I mentioned earlier, the duty cycle. It's like Wi-Fi, despite what you may have heard on YouTube, is not a switch. it is a it is a um single it's not full duplex it's half duplex something's talking nothing else can talk so there's there's basically super rapid communications back and forth between the clients and the APs and you have to reduce that traffic as much as possible it's why a lot of the optimizations that have gone into the later versions of the protocols have been to reduce the management overhead of these access points so that there's more time for clients to be talking in the duty cycle. Because the faster they can get off the air, the sooner that other people can transmit data. And so getting rid of little things like DHCP lease reauthorizations doesn't sound like a lot until you realize how many clients you have on your network that are constantly sending those packets. It's not a bad idea. Yeah, good point. Good point. Well...
0: Unlike V6, we've run out of space for this podcast. Uh, Thanks to today's guest, Tom Hollingsworth. How can folks follow you on the internet, Tom?
1: Well, there's a couple of different places to find me. If you want to follow some of my uh, professional ramblings, you can head over to gestaltit.com or techfieldday.com. That's my Bruce Wayne job where I get to talk to the manufacturers of the gear, um, some of the ones that we talked about here on this podcast. Um, And we do an event called Tech Field Day where we talk to them uh, with a group of uh, amazing professionals. But if you want to follow my Batman rants about things like this, you can always head over to my blog at NetworkingNerd.net or follow me on Twitter at NetworkingNerd.
0: Yeah, re- really recommend uh, Tom produces some great content over on his blog and and and, uh, and YouTube videos too. So he's got you know video content if you want to follow on there too. You can reach the IPv6 Buzz podcast on Twitter at IPv6 Buzz. You can also hit up each one of us on Twitter. Tom is at IPv6 Tom. Scott is at Scott Hogue. And I'm at eHorley. Thanks for listening to the IPv6 Buzz. You can find us on the Packet Pushers or any of your favorite podcast apps. Just search for IPv6 Buzz. And if you like the show, please give us a ratings on iTunes. Um, you know, If you like this podcast, we really recommend you check out Heavy Networking, Day2Cloud, Network Break Podcasts, and all the other great technical content over at packetpushers.net. So long and until next time, we'll see you on the internet. The IPv6 internet, that is.
1: Thanks for listening to IPv6 Buzz, a podcast devoted to truth, justice, and 128 bits of address space. IPv6.